right? So there is an interesting passage early on in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. In the first book of three, it's called The Fellowship of the Ring. So if you don't know J.R. Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings, um, I won't shame you publicly right now. Um, but uh, a ring of power, I'll give you a little synopsis in case you're not familiar. The ring of power has been found, and it turns out that it is the ring of power. Uh, it belongs to the dark lord Sauron, whose power has begun to reawaken, and he wants it back. And if he gets this ring, no one will be able to stop him. So a fellowship, fellowship of the ring, is assembled, and it is a motley crew of nine including a dwarf, an elf, a wizard, two men, and four hobbits, okay? So the ring was entrusted to one of those hobbits, Frodo, one of these young hobbits, small, weak little creature, and they decide that the ring must be destroyed. If anyone tries to wield it, it will inevitably corrupt him, so they need to destroy it. Unfortunately, the only way to destroy it is to take it straight into Mordor where Sauron dwells, to Mount Doom where it was created and to cast it into the fire. So it seems like a fool's errand. Impossible. Here's a bit of the dialogue between Gandalf, the wizard, and Elrond, one of the chief elves. Um, make sure you don't think of, ah, forget it, okay. Um, you know, Buddy the Elf. It's a different kind of elf. Um, so this is the quote, and you'll see why it's relevant to our passage this morning. So, despair or folly, said Gandalf. It is not despair, for despair is only for those who see the end beyond all doubt. We do not. It is wisdom to recognize necessity when all other courses have been weighed, though it may appear as folly to those who cling to false hope. Well, let folly be our cloak, a veil before the eyes of the enemy, for he is very wise and weighs all things to a nicety in the scales of his malice. But the only measure that he knows is desire, desire for power, and so he judges all hearts. Into his heart the thought will not enter that any will refuse it, the offer of power, that having the ring we may seek to destroy it. If we seek this, we shall put him out of reckoning. At least for a while, said Elrond. The road must be trod, but it will be very hard, and neither strength nor wisdom will carry us far upon it. This quest may be attempted by the weak with as much hope as the strong. Yet, such is off the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. So keep that in mind. Now, have you ever wondered how Satan tried to understand the first coming of Jesus? Kind of a strange question. Maybe a strange thought. 
So obviously all these prophecies and, you know, then angel visitations to Elizabeth and Mary and the miracle birth of Jesus and the angels in the sky singing glory to God in the highest and wise men coming from far away to worship him. So Satan most certainly incited Herod to snuff out the life of Jesus, right, along with the other little boys two years and younger in Bethlehem and in that region. But then Jesus lives in like almost total obscurity for almost 30 years after that. I mean, that had to be confusing. When he did go public at his baptism, the sky opens, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. The Father says, this is my beloved Son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. And then there was the showdown in the wilderness, right? Temptation of Jesus. Jesus faced off with Satan in a series of temptations and was victorious. So I'm sure there were plenty of things that sent a shiver up Satan's spine. Jesus commanding the wind and the waves with a word, casting out demons with a word, healing whomever he wished, raising the dead, walking on water. But if you were with us a couple weeks ago, chapter 6, he came to his hometown and he couldn't do many miracles there because of their hardness of heart. And then, over and over again, we've seen he's telling people to stay quiet about so many of the things that he's done, and the religious leaders are against him, and his family members think, think he's lost his mind. He's regularly retreating from the crowds. His disciples even don't understand. They don't seem to understand much of what he's doing. They don't seem to understand much more than the crowds. So you can imagine Satan trembling after Jesus calmed the storm or fed the 5,000. But had he known better, he should have been trembling just as much, if not more so, when the two people in our text for this morning came walking up to Jesus. So hopefully you'll see why as we walk through the text. So two encounters, two points this morning, simple outline, dogs and crumbs, spit and speech and song. Okay? So first point, dogs and crumbs, verse 24. And just for what it's worth, the first point's going to be way longer than the second point. Okay? So here we go, verse 24. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. This would be modern Lebanon. Okay? Just kind of place this in your mind. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. That could sound strange if you're not familiar with what's gone before in Mark, but if you've been with us in previous sections as we walk through the book chunk by chunk, you'll know that Jesus and his disciples couldn't get a respite from the crowds. Like regularly, they're trying to re retreat so that they can even get a meal, but the crowds follow them. And so here he's seeking respite in this region, which is a Gentile region, and so you wouldn't imagine many Jews willing to follow him there because Jews viewed Gentiles as unclean. So this isn't the first time he's avoided the crowds, and what's happening is many people are just expecting him to be their itinerant wonder worker, and he's not, he didn't come to be a magician at everybody's beck and call, okay? So he's retreating, verse 25, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, 
for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So on the heels of last week, or no, sorry, I wasn't here. COVID. Thank you, Bill. Um, appreciated your word on live stream from First Peter 5. Um, so on the heels of two weeks ago, Mark 7, 123, and the debate about the law, what's clean and unclean, Jesus heads to one of the most unclean areas he could have gone to. This was the paganist of pagan areas. Tyre in Old Testament history was Jezebel's home, that wicked queen in Elijah's day who was an enemy of God and his servants. So during the Maccabean revolt, second century BC, a little bit later, the people of Tyre fought against the Jews. So Josephus, a Jewish historian, wrote that the people of Tyre were, quote, notoriously our bitterest enemies. Okay, so these are the paganist of pagans. So this woman has everything going against her, nothing really going for her, and then Jesus gives this, like, pretty off-putting response, right? Like, did Jesus just call her a dog? That's really offensive, isn't it? Because in the first century Jewish context, dogs did not have a good connotation. Okay, it's a little different than the world in which we live today, dog-loving society. Back then, dogs were not considered man's best friend. There were no dog magnets on the back of people's cars, you know, with the colors of the American flag. There were no Who Rescued Who stickers back then, okay? No t-shirts that said, I like my dog and maybe like three people. Have you seen that t-shirt? Um, a few of you have. All right, the rest of you are wondering, what? Um, so in all the ancient Near Eastern archaeological digs thus far, no dog mom coffee mugs have yet been unearthed, okay? There were no dogs of Instagram back then, I'm pretty sure. So instead, the Old Testament connotations with dogs, let me just give you a few texts as a sample. Exodus 22, 31, you don't have to turn there. They'll be here on the screen, I think. Um, you shall be consecrated to me, therefore you shall not eat any flesh that's torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Unclean flesh to the unclean dogs. 1 Kings 21, 23, and of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. This is a judgment that's on her for her wickedness. 2 Samuel 16, 9, then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, because this guy is like, you know, attacking the king verbally, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Or even in the New Testament, do you remember? Matthew 7, 6, Jesus said, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. Dogs and pigs, not great connotations, right? So what gives? Does Jesus use a racial slur with this woman? Like, we should be like, whoa, what's going on here? Well, first off, if you were reading in Greek, you'd notice something. Jesus doesn't use the typical word for a dog. 
at least the ones that would be outside mangy, roaming around, eating garbage. He uses the diminutive form, okay? Referring to like a puppy or a small household pet, not a mangy street dog. So the picture that Jesus is painting is of a domestic scene. So just imagine the household, the table is set, the family's ready to eat. It would be obviously wrong to take the food away from the children and throw it to the household dogs. So the way Jesus states this is as a matter of priority. Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So Jesus technically doesn't reject or deny the woman's request. Do you see that? Instead, he's speaking of priority with regard to his mission. And that actually is not an isolated theme in the Bible. So in Matthew's version of this same encounter, Jesus replies to her, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Okay, that's a little less offensive way of saying the same thing. Or the Apostle Paul, remember in Romans chapter 1, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you see? It's a matter of priority. Even Paul, when he was preaching, he'd go first to the synagogues and then once they kicked him out, then he would go to the Gentiles. So even in the Old Testament, even though Israel was the chosen people of God, the children of God, they were supposed to be a light to the nations, right? Isaiah 49, 6 says, God says of his servant, I will make you as a light for the nations, the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus, in his conversation with Samaritan woman at the well, remember that in John 4? He said to her, you worship what you do not know. She's a Samaritan. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Not just for the Jews, but from them first to them and then to the ends of the earth, all peoples. So this issue of priority is not surprising and it doesn't mean a hard no for the Gentiles and not a hard no even for this woman. It's actually intended to set up a bright and shining yes for the nations. So if in the parable Jesus gives, this little dog is in a house as a house pet, then the implication is that this dog has a place in the house. In the thought world of the day, the children were the Israelites, the dogs were the Gentiles. But this dog has a place in the house and will be fed. This is Jesus' house. He's going to make sure everyone gets fed. So William Lane, commentator, summarizes this really well. He writes this. She felt no insult in the comparison between children of the household and the pet dogs. Instead, she neatly turned it to her advantage. The crumbs dropped by the children, after all, are intended for the dogs. Jesus' comparison is not rejected, but carried one step further, which modifies the entire scene. If the dogs eat the crumbs under the table, they are fed, watch it, at the same time as the children. And they don't have to wait. Indeed, let the children be fed, but allow the dogs to enjoy the crumbs. There does not have to be an interruption of the meal for what she requests is not the whole loaf, but a single crumb. 
the acceptance of the comparison, the clever reply, and the profound respect for Jesus in her address shows that her confidence in his power and goodwill has not been shaken. So when dogs eat crumbs that fall from the table, they're not stealing the children's food, although some dogs are, you know, guilty of that. They're taking advantage of the surplus. There's actually one last clue that there's more going on here than what first meets the eye. It's found in verse 27. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. That could also be translated, let the children eat all they want. So that verb for to be fed is used in two other places in Mark's gospel, Mark 6 and Mark 8. We need to take a look at these contexts. Track with me, okay? So Mark 6, 41 and 42, I think it'll be up there. This is the feeding of the 5,000. Taking the five loaves and the two fists, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them before the people and he divided the two, two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. Same verb. Remember, eat all they want. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the feeding of the 4,000 at the beginning of chapter 8. But let's at least just notice this. Chapter 8 opens with Jesus still in Gentile territory. So the feeding of the 4,000 is among the Gentiles. He feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves, right? So look at Mark 8, 8. And those 4,000 people, they ate and were satisfied. Same verb. And they took up the broken pieces, left over seven baskets full. So do you see what's happening here? Mark sandwiches this incident with the Syrophoenician woman between two miraculous feedings, the first with a Jewish crowd, the second with a Gentile crowd. And it's a parable about the table and priority. You see what's going on? She is a precursor to the greater feeding, which that meal, feeding the Gentiles, is a foreshadowing of the scope of Jesus' mission to all peoples. This is masterfully arranged. But that's not it, okay? The point is not just, hey, what a cool literary device, you know? It's not just nickel knowledge for its own sake. Here's the point. She recognizes that Jesus has more than enough for the children and the dogs in the parable. And to catch the crumbs doesn't take away from the priority to the children. Their food isn't taken away. It's merely the surplus, the leftovers that she's after. She knows that Jesus is full of abundance and surplus. Leftovers. Bingo? Anybody? So there's a big deal made in Mark's gospel in chapter 6 and 8 about the amount of baskets of leftovers. Twelve baskets full of leftovers after the feeding of the 5,000. Again, remember this chapter 6, chapter 8 sandwich with seven in between. Did the disciples understand the significance of the feeding of the 5,000? Anybody? No. Mark 6, 52. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Well, how about after the feeding of the 4,000? It's no more encouraging. Look at Mark 8, 17. It's up here. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, what are you discussing? The fact that you have no bread? 
do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? So what's going on here is remarkable. Like we are meant to be gobsmacked here. Have you ever been gobsmacked? All right. This woman is the first one to understand Jesus's mission. She's the first one to understand the meaning of the loaves. She's the first one to understand a parable that Jesus tells without his explanation, mind you. And she's responding by faith from within the parable. She sees herself in the parable. She understands and responds in faith. This is a big deal. So James Edwards, another commentator, says it really well here. What an irony. Jesus seeks desperately to teach his chosen disciples, yet they are dull and uncomprehending. Jesus is reluctant even to speak to a walk-on pagan woman. And after one sentence, she understands his mission and receives his unambiguous commendation. How is this possible? The answer is that the woman is the first person in Mark to hear and understand a parable of Jesus. The brief parable of the children and dogs at the table has disclosed to her the mystery of the kingdom of God. She is not distant and aloof, attempting to maintain her position and control. She does what Jesus commands of those who would receive the kingdom and experience the word of God. She enters the parable and allows herself to be claimed by it that she answers Jesus from within the parable, that is, in the terms by which Jesus addressed her, indicates that she's the first person in the gospel to hear the word of Jesus to her. So she basically says, I get it. I don't deserve a place at the table. I'm not one of the children of Israel. I don't disagree. But if I'm a little dog in the household, it doesn't take away from the children to allow me to have a crumb that falls from the table. There's more than enough to go around see her faith in him there's enough for me like all I need is a crumb a long distance at a word exorcism is just a crumb with Jesus okay so here's where I'm headed what would this look like for us what should this look like for us Maybe this isn't earth-shaking, but it's really important to just put our focus on it and see what this is saying. Think of other parables and how we should respond from within the parable by faith. Okay, you can take Mark 4. That's one of the parables that Jesus has already given, right? The parable of the sower. So I read this prayer this week. I started this little book called Be Thou My Vision. It's... Um, kind of helps you with your personal worship. And anyway, it's a cool little um, communion with God type resource. And there's a prayer in there, and it's an example of what this would sound like to respond similarly to this woman. Um, it goes like this. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us, in fact, Jemmy prayed like this, beautiful, may take such deep root 
that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it, but that as seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth 30, 60, or 100-fold as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. So if you come to and hear the words of Jesus, you come to this parable of Jesus in Mark 4, where you're, you're supposed to respond from inside it. Jesus is the author of the universe, and he is in charge of the story of human history. So when he tells a story about reality, we want to find where we fit in that story. So if you hear the parable of the sowers <coughs> and the seed and the soils, you want to fear the evil one and his intention to steal the seed of the word, and you want to be alert and on guard. You will fear unbelief with the heat of persecution. Remember, it comes up quickly, but then the heat of persecution and it withers and dies. So, Lord, I don't want to give way in the, case, in the face of the cost of discipleship. Help me trust you no matter what. And we will fear our faith being choked out by the worries and cares of life. Anybody ever felt that? This, my hand's not up here for illustration purposes. It's out of my own desperation, okay? So we will pay attention humbly to the word and receive it with meekness and attentiveness because we want to bear fruit. We want to become joyful, durable disciples, fruitful disciples. So you could tease this out with any of Jesus' parables. Matthew 18, if you're struggling to forgive with bitterness, that parable is so powerful. 10,000 talents, infinite debt, and, G and, and the master forgives that debt. And then he goes out and chokes another servant for 100 denarii, which is not pennies. That's a third of years of wages. That's a massive debt unless you compare it to 10,000 talents. So we want to live inside that parable and respond in faith. Or Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Like nobody's beyond the reach of the mercy and grace of God no matter what you've done, and beware of the older brother heart of self-righteousness, as if you can buy shares of control in the kingdom of God with your obedience. So this woman is the first to understand a parable in Mark's gospel. She hears, she understands, she responds from inside the parable. She sees herself in the story. She doesn't chafe at her unworthiness. She doesn't hesitate also, though, to ask for mercy, help, and deliverance. This is a model of faith. She is a model of faith. And what is her faith like? It's humble and it's plucky, okay? Courageous, determined in the face of difficulties, okay? Humble and plucky faith. She doesn't say, how dare you call me a dog? But she also doesn't put her tail between her legs and walk away. Sorry, just making sure you're all still awake and with me. She is both humble and confident, even assertive. Humble about herself and her worthiness. Confident about Jesus and his worthiness. How about that for application? We need more of both of those. Isn't it easy to get it exactly backwards? We think too highly of ourselves and what we deserve, 
all of my complaining and grumbling. And I'm saying that like because I've been convicted of it recently. Like, who do I think I am? Like, entitled to this, that, like, ah. We think too highly of ourselves. We think too little of Jesus, at least of his willingness to help. So the opposite of that is humble, bold faith. Away with the unbelief of pride and entitlement. Away with the unbelief and pride of self-pity and grumbling, complaint, bitterness. We believe, help our unbelief. Help us to honor you, Lord, with humble and bold faith. So John Newton, um, author of Amazing Grace, former slave trader, turned pastor, wrote the following to a man. In fact, the women were reading the letters of Newton. So, hey, there we go. This is one of them. Um, It's a man who was really depressed, and this is what he wrote to him. Not to say this is the reason for all depression, but this was what this guy needed to hear, and maybe some of us need to hear it too. You say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness? Well, indeed, you cannot be too aware of the evils inside of yourself, but you may be. Indeed, you are improperly controlled and affected by them. You say it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but also too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. You complain about sin, but when I look at your complaints, they're so full of self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and impatience that they are little better than the worst evils you complain of. So again, this woman shows us the way. She's a model of faith. Beautiful, meek, bold faith. She's incredibly humble, has no sense of entitlement whatsoever. She doesn't chafe at Jesus' response, and she's beautifully bold and cheeky. She honors Jesus. He is Lord. She knows her place, but she knows that even dogs, quote unquote, it's a parable, get crumbs. So she's just saying, would you great Lord that you are, for whom a long-distance exorcism is just a mere crumb, would you just authorize me to collect one from under the table? She's like a female Jacob wrestling with God until he blesses her. And obviously, Jesus is no respecter of persons. He sees and responds not to human status, but to human need and to sincere faith. Remember back to the beginning, that Tolkien quote? Such is off the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must out of necessity while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. Let's go and do likewise. Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All right, so one more set of humble hands that move the wheels of the world before we're done with our study and participate in the Lord's table together. So second point, spit and speech and song. Verse 31. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And if you remember back from chapter 5, this is a largely non-Jewish location. 
And the last time he was there, he got asked to leave. Because remember, he cast the demons out of that man and they went into the pigs and the pigs went into the water and that was a huge economic loss. So they asked him to leave. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hand on him and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed, or that could be translated moaned, and said, like a groan, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. So Aramaic for be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Just a little sidebar here. Jesus' healings are not a disruption of the natural order. They are a return to it. Verse 36, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. Kind of ironic. <laughs> Looses the tongue of a mute, tells him and others not to tell anyone. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he's done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Well, this is a weird way to heal, isn't it? Like, why did Jesus do it this way? What, is there, like, significance to this? Well, there's some discussion, you know, in the commentaries about the meaning of spit in the ancient Near Eastern healing rituals, and there are some accounts of saliva being used in the healing arts of the day. And so is Jesus adopting the arts of these so-called magical healers of the day? No. Mark is highlighting the deep empathy of Jesus toward this man. He doesn't treat him just like another face in the crowd. He treats him as a valuable individual. He pulls him away from the crowd so as to not make a spectacle of him. He's probably been, felt like a spectacle most of his life. Jesus is not afraid to touch him. This healing is so attentive and individualized and personal. The sensitivity, the kindness of Jesus is highlighted here. So get into the world of this Situation and imagine how this man was likely shunned and perhaps even made fun of. Think of, of the noises he would have made when he was trying to communicate. The moaning and the groaning. Inarticulate. People thought that he was probably, they probably thought that he was not just dumb as in mute, but probably stupid. You can imagine people making fun of him. So think of how well-suited this healing is to this deaf man. It's as if Jesus is communicating what he's about to do in sign language. <laughs> he's healing him via sign language. Isn't that beautiful? He sticks his fingers in his ears. He touches his tongue. And then he does it. It's beautiful. Jesus is so worthy of our adoration. Now, the text says that this man speaks plainly, clearly, after Jesus healed him. So why is, in the parentheses in this little second point, spit and speech and song? There's no song in this passage. I mean, the spit and speech, okay, get that. Where's the song come from? Well, the description of this man in verse 32 as the one who is deaf and had a speech impediment should have a hot link on them to Isaiah 35. You know what a hot link is? Like you're reading your email and there's like blue letters and a blue line and you touch it and it goes to the webpage that gives you the Wikipedia explanation of what in the world you're talking about. So this description of this guy is a hot link to Isaiah 35. 
You remember what Jemmy wrote? Re wrote, read. Isaiah 35, 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute, same word, sing for joy. Verse 8, and a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The redeemed shall walk there. The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isaiah 35 is a vision of the renewal of all things. This is the hope of the people of God. And the healing of this deaf and mute man means the renewal has begun. The wheels of the world are turning by way of the changed lives of those seemingly insignificant and small people. The day of the Lord has come. God's come to save his people. The kingdom is coming. The healing, the renewal has begun. The song of the redeemed is rising. The redeemed. Wait, the mission of Jesus. That's why he came. The Son of Man didn't come to be served. Doesn't need anything. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, if you're following Jesus, if you trust him like this woman, you're on the way of holiness. You're on the highway of holiness. And all who are on that way following Jesus will come to Zion with singing and we will feast in the house of Zion. We will be satisfied Everlasting joy shall be upon our heads. We will have fullness of joy forever in the presence of God and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So this healing is a signal that we can straighten up and raise our heads for our redemption is drawing near. It's already begun and one day it will come in its fullness will be totally free forever. The renewal has begun. Do you see what this insignificant, seemingly insignificant person and this healing that happened in this little corner near Lebanon is massively cosmically significant. These two seeming nobodies are eternally significant road signs on the highway of holiness. This formerly pagan woman, this formerly deaf man, mute man, are previews of coming attractions. So listen, brothers and sisters, draw to a close here. We're so often focused on the news, which is like totally depressing. The world is burning. Everything's going wrong left, right, and center. All the big and ominous world events and developments, all the key players on the world stage. Okay, we don't need to live with our heads in the sand. Like, yeah, we need to know what's going on. But the real earth-shaking things are happening in very quiet places. So I was just reminded of this a couple days ago. And just to say this word is going to probably elicit a chuckle, but we, I'm closing with this. Um, we, we started playing Farkle again. Does anybody know what Farkle is? It's this little game, little box of dice, six dice, and it's not really like Yahtzee, but kind of like Yahtzee. And anyway, the reason I have this little box of six dice is because I did the funeral for a lady who loved this game. 
and she died in her late 60s of ALS. And if you know anything about ALS, it's terrible. And it is a horrible way to die. And this woman and her family, very well-to-do. My wife and her family knew them growing up. They were like, you know, kind of the poster people for having it all together. But they didn't know Jesus. And then she got ALS, diagnosed with ALS. And her body started to deteriorate. And family reconnection happened. And I started visiting her in the nursing home. And she really could barely move, even by the time I started meeting with her. And it wasn't long before she died. But I met with her regularly because she was wrestling with what she believed. And she was afraid to die. And in that little room in a nursing home, sharing the gospel with her over the course of some weeks, Charlotte Bulbrick came to faith in Jesus. And it's just so easy to just not even think of someone who is completely sidelined from life. I mean, what can they do? But as far as what's going on, as far as what God is doing in the world, that was way more significant than what was on the news. Who even remembers? So listen, brothers and sisters, what's happening in you as you learn to believe, as I learn to believe, like this Syrophoenician woman, to trust and follow Jesus on the highway of holiness, and what's happening through you as you bring the light of Jesus to your neighbors and the nations is what is really moving the wheels of the world to its appointed consummation. We just need to let that sink in. And I think the table is a wonderful place for that to begin to sink in. So as we prepare to share in the Lord's table, there's a somewhat obscure story in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 9. King David wanted to know if there was anybody left from the house of Saul that he could show kindness to after Saul and Jonathan died. It was actually for the sake of Jonathan. Remember he had that covenant with Jonathan? They were good friends. So there was a son of Jonathan named Mephibosheth, and he was crippled. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your son, and you shall eat at my table always. And Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should so regard for a dead dog such as I? <laughs> Mephibosheth didn't deserve a seat at the table. Saul had tried to kill David. It was common for new kings to kill the family of the previous king. Why would David honor this descendant of Saul? He did it because of his covenant with Jonathan. Kindness and provision, provision for a dead dog, crippled man who had nothing to contribute. He was needy. He wasn't one of David's mighty men sitting at the table. It was all because of covenantal kindness, and it's the same for us. As we come to the table, we do not deserve a seat at the Lord's table. We are outsiders who can contribute nothing but our sin and our need. We are dead dogs. 
in our sin. But because of the new covenant love and kindness of Jesus, we don't just get the crumbs that fall from the table. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim, we enjoy this new covenant grace that is ours because of the blood and kindness of King Jesus. We have a seat. We have every right to feast on the grace of the Lord Jesus. He's our bread of life and our living water. This is not a potluck. You don't have to contribute your potato salad obedience in order to have a right to the table. God set the table. He's invited us. And if you are trusting in Jesus as your Savior, you come. This is on the king's dime. Jesus is the host. He doesn't need anything from us but need and hunger and thirst and faith. So come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. We don't deserve this table. We just have to receive it. So, the Lord's Supper, communion, is for all who are trusting in Jesus as Savior and Lord. God's given us two ordinances as means of grace. Baptism, initial step of going public with your faith, just like Lydia did. The Lord's Supper is the ongoing and soul-nourishing ordinance, reminder of the work of Christ, means of grace. So, if you're baptized and are trusting in Jesus, we welcome you to participate in the Lord's Supper today. If you didn't grab one of the packets of, of uh, juice and the bread. You can grab one now. Um, but if Jesus is not yet your Lord and Savior, we ask that you pass on taking the bread and the cup. But don't let this moment pass. Maybe you need to come and talk to me or talk with one of the people that you know, maybe who invited you. What does it mean to trust in Jesus? I want to trust in Jesus. If you have questions, I'd be happy to talk to you. I'm sure others would as well. Or maybe you need to come and talk to me about being baptized. Following, going public with your faith. So let's pray and take a few minutes to examine our hearts and then we'll participate together. Lord Jesus, we see in such beautiful ways the abundance and surplus and provision that you have in this passage. Grace upon grace. And so wide, open to all peoples. And I pray that we would feed on you and be nourished. Lord, I pray that your, your grace, the food that you feed us with, would so satisfy us that the stuff that we may be using to satisfy our hunger, like Brian opened with that Thomas Chalmers quote, that we would just be put out of taste 
for those lesser things because we are filled up with your sweetness and with your bread of life, living water, grace. So show us your glory. We've we've seen it. Help us to see it with the eyes of faith and help us to trust you with bold and humble faith. Nourish us, Lord. And where we need to see our sin and repent, help us to do that and get out of the way anything that's impeding our fellowship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.